Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast, a showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we get started, I wanted to remind you about our survey again. It only takes a few minutes to complete. It'll really help uh, shape the future of Revision Path once we get your feedback. Just go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to fill that out. Also, we're now available on iTunes and Stitcher. You can visit revisionpath.com forward slash iTunes or revisionpath.com forward slash Stitcher to subscribe. Make sure to rate us five stars and write us a good review as well. The more downloads, subscribers, five-star ratings, and reviews we get, the more we can get the word out about the show. This week, I talked with the venerable Michelle Washington, a designer and educator in New York City. Here we go. Okay, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Michelle Washington. I do creative direction, branding, strategy, and design writing. And I live in New York City. All right. How is the design scene in New York City? Oh, I think, well, I, I look at design in many different ways. I don't look at, look at it totally from the area that I work in as a graphic designer or creative director I look at it as a whole, um, whether people are doing product design, whether they're makers, whether they're doing fashion design, industrial design, textile design. So I think there's, there is a lot going on with um, the creative community, or I could even say creative entrepreneurs and what they're doing. There are a lot of different areas in Manhattan that are popping up I mean, with co-working spaces that a lot of creative people are using. Uh, the same thing is happening in Brooklyn and also in parts of the Bronx. Uh, there's some co-working spaces that are um, opening up. So there's a lot that's happening. And I should, shouldn't leave out Queens, Long Island City in particular. Nice, nice. Now you also come from a very artistic family. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I can. I have um, two uncles that studied art in college. Um, my mother's brother, uh, Charles Jones, studied advertising. and That was his major at Syracuse University. He initially thought that he would graduate and work in an advertising agency, but soon after school he got married and had a kid, and he said, well, Working in an ad agency wasn't paying enough to support him and his family, so he ended up going into education, so he taught art in high school. Uh, my father's youngest brother, Horace Washington, uh, is an artist in San Francisco. He works with handicapped and disabled kids, teaching them art, but he also is a practicing artist. He does a lot of art in public spaces, uh, throughout California and exhibits quite a bit. He has this series that he's worked on off and on for a number of years. Um, they're masks and they're different size masks and um, they basically represent the diversity that you will see in California. California is one of those places that just has people that come from all over the world and a lot of I would call them first world countries, different parts of Asia, uh, South America, Mexico, and I would also think maybe a little parts of um, Northwest Africa too. So his masks sometimes are cast in bronze. They are embedded with ivory. Um, because I had an aunt that lived in Northwest Africa many years ago, and uh, at the time when it was legal, he did. She would give him pieces of ivory. So there are a couple of pieces that I know he's made that have um, ivory and other precious stones in those. And that's really it. Okay, nice. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the work that you've done with uh, with visual perceptions. This was a sort of like a, a project that you did together with Faux Wilson. Is that right? Yes, I did. Um, Foe and I have worked together over the years, uh, probably midway through our careers. Uh, she had a studio. She worked at Essence. I worked at Essence. I worked in her studio with uh, Studio W. Um, and right after she had left, I say, Essence, she was teaching part-time at Parsons. And there was an exhibit at Parsons. And they that there was a 
I want to say it was a black face on two on a on a toothpaste. Someone had done art along that line, and I can't remember who the artist was, where the art came from, but it was an exhibition that um, students there uh, found disturbing, and they a group of students challenged the school to take the artwork down, the school said there's freedom of speech of artists, the piece was defaced, it made the local news, there's a lot of back and forth in the news about the subject matter and how it would be offensive to the student body, being very insensitive mm-hmm. to um, just you know, it's a broad range of students um, from all over the world. So as a result, the school put out a call for anyone that wanted to do an exhibition that dealt with this sort of sensitivity of race and identity. And so since Bo was working there at the time, she asked me if I would be interested in um, collaborating on a particular project with her for an exhibition. And so we developed visual perceptions of 21 African-American designers challenging modern stereotypes. And it dealt with the race and identity of how black Americans had been in the past and were currently being depicted in the media, print, online, packaging, uh, in every aspect, um, music, film. And so we put together a list of designers from all over the country. And some of the designers we didn't know, a few we did know um, that were local. And it was really uh quite successful. The exhibit traveled for two years. We also organized a panel around the exhibition. So different locations where the exhibit would uh, be featured, uh, either Fo or myself and Eric Perkins, who at that time had done a, uh, a lot of extensive work on race and identity with um, black cartoons, packaging, um, advertising, old advertising. Eric had an amazing collection of all of these old black cartoons, Coontown books, uh, a lot of ephemera, things that I had never seen or even heard of way before I was even born. And uh, so he was quite an authority on this particular topic. And that's what we did. Now, was this uh, before or after IGA's uh, design journeys? Uh, the AIGA. Um, yeah. It was before the AIGA design journey. Um, we actually did meet with the former director of the AIGA, and so Visual Perceptions was uh, featured in their Chicago, at their Chicago conference. Uh, AIGA has a national conference, and so... Uh, from our meeting with Carolyn Hightower and Nathan Gluck, uh, they asked us if they could um, host visual perceptions for the national conference. And uh, it was quite successful. And they also uh, put on a panel with Foe and Roger Tucker. And um, there were two people from Nike. So that was the only connection we had with them, but never a connection through um, the design journey. That was something totally separate. Um, I can't remember uh, 100% how design journey fully uh, came to be, but I do remember there was, um, I want to say Bill Grant out of Atlanta was um, the president, I believe, at the time. And he had decided that there should be a major initiative in pushing forward uh, designers of color and from different diverse backgrounds. Um, It's not the first time that the AIGA has tried to mount a program or or any type of initiatives or efforts that around designers of color. They've done it like at least two or three times here before in New York City that I remember of. Um, But this particular time with design journeys was actually setting up an advisory board. And I was part of the advisory board with um, Steve Jones, Maurice Woods, um, Louis Gail Anderson, Rebecca Mendez, Raphael Esca, and Bennett Pagey. I know I'm leaving out a few other people. Um, Victor Margolin, who's a design historian, and Victor has this book that just came out last year. It's a three-volume book on global design. 
that takes you all over the world. And I think the interesting thing about Victor's book, if I'll speak about that for just a, a moment, sure. is that Victor has focused on countries and cities and places where you normally don't think of designers or design coming out of uh, in some very sort of rural parts of the world. Um, and Victor is also, um, I met Victor when I lived in Chicago. And at that time, I had done a lot of research on the history of black graphic designers from a, a lecture series I had developed. And Victor at that time was also interested in my research because the University of, of Illinois um, and the Chicago campus was developing an archive of collecting materials on black designers from Chicago. And Victor had later on had started developing um, his own body of research. And he has a small short film uh, that he's done on the black designers in Chicago. That's quite interesting. Oh, what's the film called? Um, it's just Chicago Black Designers. Uh, if you're ever interested, I could put you in contact with Victor. And he's got people in the film that have worked in advertising, people that have been architects, uh, industrial designers, and product designers. Yeah, sure. I would love that. I would love to yeah. see that. Yeah, it's quite good. So speaking about Chicago, I know that you've done art direction work for the Chicago Tribune as well as the New York Times. What was that experience like? Well, uh, it's really interesting working in newspapers because it's a very quick turnaround. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have a long time to sit and ponder over uh, a design idea, an illustrator or a photography, or hiring a photographer. Something closes daily. Um, when I worked at the New York Times, um, I worked on the arts and leisure section, travel, business, and book review. And you hired an illustrator, you give them your time frame. It's not like they would give you your sketch on Wednesday, and then the following Wednesday you could say, oh, yes, um, I need a final sketch. You had to tell them, okay, I need the sketch back in um, 24 hours, and then I need the final the next day. So there wasn't a long window of time for you to um, give uh, any of the vendors or that you were working with, illustrators, photographers, a chance to do anything. Um, there's a photo editor, so you would work with a photo editor on securing photos um, and making any type of photo assignments. I also worked very briefly on the magazine side with the New York Times. And then with the Chicago Tribune, we had a longer window of time, even though uh, it was a weekly. I worked on a section called Women's News, and I also worked there doing special supplements for the magazine, Chicago Sunday Tribune Magazine, Home and um, Health. I have to remember these things. <laughs> and uh, So with the special supplements, I could actually work with the staff photographers on photo shoots. Uh, the Chicago Tribune very rarely hired outside photographers. Um, everything was done by their in-house photography team, and which was actually quite interesting because you could have someone that would normally be out one day shooting a fire, a politician, or some type of award ceremony, and then you would say, oh, yeah, you know, I really want to work with Bob because he's really good at shooting food or interiors. And then you would have that same person come in and do an interior shoot or someone else that you knew that really was very good in doing portraitures. You could say, well, I really want them to come in and shoot in this health club for me because we're doing this whole workout routine with this health fitness guru. And that's how you, that's how I worked at the Chicago Tribune. Um, it was a pretty quick turnaround there. Uh, I would say the difference was that we were on computers at the Chicago Tribune. When I worked at the New York Times, they were not fully up on computers yet, even though other publications uh, were working on computers. So I also worked in magazines. So uh, once computers came into the scene, everything started to change with magazines and newspapers because there was a sharing 
where uh, you had to share your files with the editors. So the editors would input the corrections. You would do the design on your part. Um, there could be some color correcting by the production department, or you get the photographers to do the color correction on the digital files. So I would say that I've straddled working, um, doing layouts from cut and paste with cold metal type, um, hot metal and cold type. Uh, I'll correct that. And um, switching over to working um, on computers. So whereas now there's a whole generation of designers that only know what it is like to work on computers. That's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, we interviewed Emery Douglas back in January. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I talked about with him with design was sort of the time of designing before computers. A lot of, like you said, a lot of design now seems to be firmly attached to technology. Yes. Um, you know, I still do uh, all... I like to sit and draw and sketch. Um, I didn't study graphic design as an undergraduate student. I studied fine arts, mainly printmaking and painting. And so I was really very good at drawing. I had an amazing high school art teacher, Mrs. Gerard, that passed away about two months ago. And interesting thing, I'll regress a little bit. She had also taught my uncle, uh, Horace Washington, also in high school. Okay. Um, about 12 or 15 years before I had gotten there. <laughs> and so um, she, she was very good. I mean, she really pushed students to go to college and study art. And if you took any of her art classes and you were not really skilled, she would discourage you from taking any more classes or would just tell you, I think you should switch to another uh, elective course because this art class is not for you, darling. She was very blunt. <laughs> but um, I, I, you know, learned how to sketch everything out by hand. Um, once I got to graduate school, uh, I went to graduate school at Pratt for communication design. But it's interesting because initially when I went to graduate school at Pratt, I first started out in printmaking. And then I soon realized that, well, what am I going to really do with printmaking, even though I love printmaking still, um, that I did switch to graphic design in their graduate program because I realized I could actually make a living. And I had taken like one design, sort of I would say commercial art class in undergraduate school. And um, that was really helpful for me to get me to understand different ways of um utilizing the fine arts background that I had and then also this new area of working in with typography and but I knew how to sketch out my concepts and ideas but at that time we used letterpress and a photostat machine mm -hmm. and a copy machine and a Lucy machine so I, I, I do understand what um, Emily Douglas is talking about whereas now um, if I fast forward, uh, I went back to school a few years ago and got a second master's in design criticism from SVA. Um, what I look at with that is that I'm, I'm working on a laptop and a desktop for my courses because uh, mm -hmm. it's all writing, research, and curating. Um, I'm learning programs like Pro Tools to do interviews um, and develop podcasts and also taught myself how to use um, Premiere and After Effects so I could do um, short video segments with another project that I've been working on with a colleague, um, collaborating to do um, uh, short films on designers and makers of color. But we have all this technology now that allows us to do a lot more, but I still feel that the skills that I learned in undergraduate and in graduate school at Pratt are just as applicable today as working on a computer. Because like I said, I if I'm writing, I write out notes by hand and I create these um, diagrammatic concept maps and I will type out every all of my notes and just write up 
everything that I want to say about this particular person or if I'm writing about um, a building, uh, a piece of architect or I'm right, doing something about public space. <clears throat> and then I, I might even print everything out and cut apart sections with scissors and tape them back together again mm-hmm. and put them up on a wall. So I still use some of those hand scales and I sketch for design, I sketch out everything. If I'm doing a logo for someone, I will sketch it out. Uh, I don't get on the computer and do my sketches. I do hand sketches. So I just feel that I can do the hand sketches much quicker than I can do sketches in Illustrator. I know that there's some younger designers or maybe seasoned designers that feel that they don't like working that way. But even... Uh, in any of the courses that I have taught and what I teach now part-time at FIT in the exhibition design class, I make all the students sketch because I just feel that it explores a different part of your brain cells mm-hmm. and it, it just makes you think differently. And you're always constantly changing. So I when I went back to graduate school the second time, I used some of the skills that I had as a designer to think about how I would write and do my research. And I realized that writing is about revising. And if you're designing, you're always revising Mm -hmm. your designs early on until you get something approved. And even once it's approved, things change. So you're constantly changing. And even when everything's finalized and you're going to go to the printer, you still kind of think there's this sort of little nitpicky things that you could change. And writing for me is be- has become the same thing. So I'm constantly revising and thinking of how I could write a sentence differently or structure a paragraph differently. And so I relate those two things together, elements together. And I just look at what I've learned in the past and apply it to the present as much as possible. I don't know if Emily Douglas does the same thing, but I I do love his work. (laughs) I I would say that in high school, I had a collection of Black Panther newspapers with all of his work in there. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. My mother wouldn't let me bring them in the house, (laughs) Um, so I kept them in my locker at high school. And at some point when I was halfway through college, I had to get rid of them because I had no place to store them. And they're worth it. I don't know. They've bitten the dust, I'm sure. <laughs> now let's talk about that uh the design criticism uh masters that you talked about that you said has to do with sort of writing and research. How can designers benefit more from from design criticism? Um <clears throat> you know it's it was it's a program that focused on design 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 writing, research and curation. I think that designers uh I feel like I found that a lot of my design friends write really well mm-hmm. and, and, and like writing. And I think that, um, in, and most of these friends, they teach. And I would say part of my reason for going is that a friend encouraged me to go. And she, um, she kept saying, she said, you should really apply to this program with Sylvia Harris. This would be perfect for you. It would really teach you how to write because you're always doing this research. You want to write books and you want to do all these other things that you keep talking to me about. And you, you really need to go to this program. And so I applied. And it was an amazing experience um, for me. I met some really wonderful classmates and people who were in the first class. I was in the second class to graduate and people in the first class were great and I've made friends with people that have come after me, you know, in the program. And people sort of form this close knit of alums, and we call ourselves D-critters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really nice because we can network with, with each other. Um, some people don't, do not come from a background in design at all. Some people come from an architecture background. Some people come from uh, a writing background where they've worked in News, uh, like newspapers or magazines, but maybe they've written mainly about design or architecture. There was one person in my class that had a background in um, industrial design that was from India. 
there was someone in the first class that had worked for um, a major publisher. I want to say it was Chronicle. And he had worked on a lot of um, design books and photography books. And so he was really well-skilled in the area of writing and design writing. Um, so, you, you know, it's nice because there's a cross-section of people. But for me, when I look at it and thinking about a, as a design educator, uh, I, I feel like you, students need to be able to not only verbally communicate their ideas, but to be able to communicate their ideas in writing. Um, I teach part-time in the exhibition design program at the Fashion Institute of Technology. And I, for the last three years, I have served as a thesis advisor to some of the students. And it's really interesting that some of the students have a hard time actually articulating what they want to say mm-hmm. in writing. And so there's a writing center. So they have to deal with the writing center, but they need to be able to write down a description of what the project is going to be so that it's clear to a stranger or someone that has no idea about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And that can be a challenge for some students, even if English is their first language. And sometimes people can verbally communicate it, but they cannot communicate it in words. So Sometimes I make a student record what they're telling me and then listen to that recording over and over again and then say, now write what it is you really want to say. And they also, it'll take them a while to get it. And I think part of it is, is that you initially think that writing is very easy, <laughs> but it's not. It's very hard. And to write with clarity is, is difficult. Um, I, I can think about some of the writers that I, I, whose work I really love, uh, Chiamanji Ngozi Adichie, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her first name right, but she has uh, a book, America Out, and um, Follow the Yellow Sun was another book I read of hers, and Toni Morrison, they have a way of painting their words on a page, mm-hmm. and I would say I know that they're writing over and over and over again. And not every time that you come to the page or look at your screen or start writing out by hand is everything going to just flow. And and so I think with a design student, they expect for it to flow immediately. And I also taught a year ago at Parsons in their design strategies program, a data and visualization course. And I would make the students do a writing assignment for one of the projects. And I remember explaining to uh, the class at one point how many times I would revise an article. And one of the students said to me, you're joking. And I said, no. I said, I could do it 25 times. I could do it 10 times. I said, but I keep revising until I get it right. And then I also explained to them that I read everything out loud. And sometimes I read it backwards, like, tapping each word backwards just to get a sense of flow. And one of the students said, you know, I've never thought of reading my writing out loud because I would make them also read their writing out loud Mm -hmm. so they could hear what everything sounded like and what the words sounded like. And that started to help several of them to clean up and revise their writing. So that's my long-winded answer about writing (laughs) design. I want to talk a little bit about this notion of, of the black aesthetic. Mm-hmm. In 2011, at the Decrit conference, you did a talk uh, called Untangling the Naps. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. That was my thesis okay. uh, topic. And it took me a long time to get to Untangling the Naps. And I started out initially trying to do... Um, a history, not a history, but um, more of a focus on black graphic designers because I had done a, an extensive research on the topic of black graphic designers of the 20th century. I had lent- lectured extensively on it. And once I got all my ducks in order and collected all the information, I wrote up an abstract. The advisor in the chair said, this is a lot. And we had to present all of our findings and our preliminary work to uh, a panel of critics. And 
they loved the idea, but they said, you know, you only have 10,000 words, and what you're talking about is a book. And so maybe you want to narrow this down and focus just on one area. So I really had a hard time figuring about what exactly do I really want to do. Mm -hmm. So I went in, I, I set up a meeting, and I went in and I sat and I talked to the chair. And we went back and forth, and she said, there must be something just one thing like a symbol, an icon, or something that you could just focus on. And chair is very good in getting you to really tease out your thoughts and information, um, Alice Twimlow. And I, it popped into my head. I said, the Afro. And she said, okay, that's perfect. And she said, I, I don't know a lot about the subject matter and topic, but what is it about, you know, the Afro that you really think about? I said, well, no, I said, it was a lot of design that evolved out of the Afro. There was a whole body of symbols and icons. And so that's how uh, my thesis topic emerged. And so I also had to do an applied thesis, which was a very crude film of people that I had interviewed and some ephemera that I had collected that um, grew out of the Afro from the 60s, 70s, and what is happening now in black popular culture with the Afro. And through my findings and my research of interviewing people and going around, one of the things that I started to notice is that um, social media has become a really big platform for black women, uh, and particularly younger black women, to talk about their hair. So if you think about the Afro, it has a series of iterations and names from the Afro to the Fro to the natural. And it's a hairstyle that has endured over time. I mean, it started back in the 50s um, with Abby Lincoln and Nina Simone. And now if you fast forward, there are people like Michael July that are doing books just on women with natural hair, the Afro, Fro, whether it's the teeny weeny Afro or the big bulbous Afro. And I started to think about, you know, how Afro, the Afro has transcended over time and it's used today in social media where women actually openly and freely talk about their hair, how they care for their hair, products they use, products they make. Black women never really talk openly, publicly about hair in its natural state. It just wasn't something you publicly talked about. Mm -hmm. And um, But now you go online, you can find blogs about natural hair. Uh, you can find people on Twitter, women on Twitter, talking about natural hair. You can find it on Facebook. I'm not sure about Google+, Plus, but I'm sure that, you know, somebody must be there. YouTube, there's some two sisters that I uh, watch their videos on YouTube. They have a whole YouTube channel, channel that's devoted to black hair care for the Afro um, products that you can use, the products that you can make you know, hairstyles, and it's very, it just was, I was just like really astounded, and I was just very excited and elated by it. And then also, I started looking at advertising and TV commercials and print commercials, and um, I started to realize that much like in the 60s and the 70s, in black magazines where you had an emerging black middle class that was coming up that would that were that were the um, that would buy products and advertisers would use the afro as a signifier um to signify that you know this is for black people or blackness or to encourage black people as a sign of the times very much today if you start looking at a lot of um ads that deal with pop culture that are geared towards either a black market or you want to tap into the black market is that a lot of the models, whether they're male, female, little kids, have little teeny afros, big fluffy afros, they just have natural hair. So that's something that really intrigued me. And I've talked to a couple of people that worked in advertising. Um, one of my former students that works with um, Spike Lee's agency, Debu Thomas, uh, we got into a little conversation, not very long-winded, about um, 
the whole scenario of how advertisers use that way of defining blackness or black aesthetic. And some black people resent it, uh, black women, because they're like, well, not all black women have natural hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that you need to be more representational of the market. And so I think it's a way of really tapping into what um, advertisers look as look at as being hip and part of um, black popular culture. So you identify what you think is this segmented market of your um, users and say, okay, we're going to dress them or we're going to only use people that look this way. So it's no longer like always the weave and the flowing hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see the natural. And I don't see a lot of dreads in TV or print commercials, not to say that they don't exist. Um, and I look at films, not too much braids, some. Mm-hmm. But that that's more or less of what I look at as a black aesthetic. I also look at um, music and fashion. I think music has a way of really pushing the black aesthetic in the vernacular and the language and the narrative that comes out of music, the syncopated beat. Mm-hmm. I also think of um, films. What's happening with that? I mean, I, I also sort of look at it from a standpoint of um, it's a and the ability to tell my story or our story is my responsibility because who else is going to talk about the Afro but me or another black woman? And so I think it's very much like what a playwright might do. Um, I could think of what filmmakers do. Um, I could think of people that do documentaries like Thomas, Alan Harris, and Deborah Willis that have a documentary that's coming out on black photographers. It's their mission to talk about black photographers and to give us a little history of who were the black photographers and who are the black photographers now and who, who have transcended over time. So if they don't tell us, um, someone like Deborah Willis or Thomas Allen Harris, uh, who, who else is going to tell us, tell our stories? So I, I think it's really um, very important for us to tell our stories. And I can think of Saki Mafandikwa that wrote a book on African alphabets and decided to move back home after a long stint in New York City as an art director in books, moved back to Zimbabwe to start a, an art school. And in South Africa, and, and particularly in Zimbabwe, there were no design schools. So Saki opened up a design school, and he's had this school for 10 years now. And he'd be an amazing person for you to talk to about what this, what he's done and what his school's, school is, has done and what it's doing now. Um, so I, I just sort of look at you know, me talking about the Afro as part of my thesis, as part of my mission and telling the black story. Well, we'll have to talk after this about about reaching out to Saki because I think that would be a really that would be a really good interview to talk about a lot of the work that he's done with uh, with typography. I, I saw a TED talk that he did where he spoke about African alphabets that was astonishing. He's very he's an amazing speaker. One of my um, design crit alum, alums, um, Amelie, who's working at the Vitro Museum in. Um, and it's not Austria that's in us. It'll come to me later. Sorry. Um, she emailed me and asked me for an introduction to Saki because she said, I see that you know him on LinkedIn and I'm working on this project <clears throat> that has to do with um, African architecture and design. And I think that him and his students would be great to be a part of this um, exhibition project. And I connected the two of them so I know that he's going to be doing something with the Vitra Museum within the next year or two. And so it would be good to find, you know, to talk to him about that. But he's just an amazing, amazing what he's done with his school. Are you working on any personal projects now? Yes, I am. I am developing some book book proposals. Um, One will focus on my thesis Another one I'm developing with a colleague that's an architectural historian out of the University of Michigan. And 
and we're hoping to put together a book that's a collection of um, essays by uh, on by and about blacks or Africans or people from the Caribbean that work in um, placemaking, urban design, architecture. And we're just still formulating our ideas, and I've been collecting information from different people. So I've had a couple former Decred alums send me abstracts from their thesis um, to submit as part of our book proposal. I'd like to do a book based on my um, Afro um, narrative talk. Uh, actually call it uh, The Afro Talks Back, because um, I think that the Afro speaks back to uh, the viewers. I look at the Afro as sometimes being a protagonist. And then uh, this past summer, I spent a month in Brazil, traveling throughout Brazil, more in the north than in the south, although I did spend some time in the south. And I did a, a lot of interviewing of visual artists, designers, and makers there. And I'd like to be able at some point to compile a book that really covers my research of what designers and makers and visual artists do in the northern part of Brazil. And may, maybe I might end up focusing more on the state of Bahia, because I often think that when people speak about design in Brazil, or makers in Brazil, that they tend to leave out the northern part of Brazil, in the state of Bahia in particular. And uh, there's Brazil has a very rich culture in the arts and design. And it's a country that could easily be divided into three or five countries. And most of the design that you'll see that comes out of Brazil tends to come from the southern part, like places like Sao Paulo and Rio, because those are the large metropolitan areas that are very much like being in a Chicago and L.A. or New York City. So that's where people really go to do their design. So I'm interested in finding people more in the northern part that do product design, furniture design, industrial design, and some fashion design. So hopefully I'll get a grant and I could go back and uh, do more research. And I have an interest in making films. And so I started last year um, collaborating with a colleague, George Lodgins. And we have put together a proposal where we will be shooting uh, designers and makers and thinkers of color. We've shot two people so far, and we're hoping to do more. And we realize that probably as we move forward that we'll have to do some crowdfunding. So whether it's an Indiegogo or Kickstarter um, campaign that in order to really um, launch the project properly and to market and promote it and to build out a website where we could host all of our information. And that's some of the things that I have an interest in doing <laughs> when it comes to collaborating. And I also like working with other creative entrepreneurs um, like product designers or um, visual artists and looking at how they could take their work and transform it into other areas and mediums, like whether it's tabletop design, stationery, uh, or fashion, or surface patterns, textiles. So that's another area that I would love to explore and collaborate on with um, people. So I think that'll keep me pretty busy for the next century. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what is it that, that inspires you to do all of this? But it, it seems like it's it's almost limitless. Well, I just think that as a creative person, no one area can contain you. And I just have these interests and I just feel that um, I, I like designing and I like making and I like doing things with my hands. And I feel that as you move through life, you start to shift your interests. And I think it's good to explore those interests because a lot of times, as I said before, the skill set that you have in one area, some of those skills can transfer into other areas. And then, you know, you'll take a course here and there and you'll learn some skills that help you grow in an area that you have an interest in. Like I've taken courses in tabletop design, um, not to say that I would go out and say, oh, yes, I'm a tabletop designer. But I have some basic 
um, fundamental understandings of tabletop design um, that would give me skills to say, okay, yes, I know how to do the specifications for plates um, or uh, a place setting. Uh, taking an uh, online course in um, textile design to learn how to do repeats and how to develop um, designs and how to apply them to address a table or wall. So, you know, I think if you have those certain skills, you start to look at what what else can I do with these skills? It's no different than if I go back and I look at the skills that I gained from design criticism. How else can I take those skills and actually use them in other areas? So for me to collaborate with George Larkins and developing um, the film series of designers and makers, that's something that I gained from my secret days. But then I could also go back and say, well, when I worked on staff and magazines, I art directed a lot of photo shoots. So I do know how to art direct people in front of a camera. And I know how to develop storyboards. And so you start to put together all those skills that you have. And then you go out and you talk to people that you know that may be doing exactly what you want to do. And you ask for help if someone is willing to share some tidbits or, or facts or direct you towards where you need to go. And I, I think it's important to, to do that and ask for help from people because people either say yes or no. And a lot of times people are really, really generous and more than willing to help you. Mm-hmm. I remember for one of my classes I had to put together a proposal. I was, it was uh, uh, for my applied thesis. And I had come up with the idea. I said, well, you know, I'd like to do a film film on the Afro, and it would be like a 45-minute documentary. And I um, emailed a friend and asked him, you know, would you give me some pointers on, you know, how I could actually put together a proposal? And he said, sure. And I called him up, and we talked. And he was, it was amazing help. And, you know, he told me what people are doing now, what he does. Um, He said every proposal is different. He said, but, you know, these are the key points that you need in the proposal. And if you're going to raise funds and you're going to do crowdsourcing, you know, he said it's a lot of work. He said, but, you know, this is what you need to do to mount a successful campaign. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you ask for help. Yeah, I think asking and collaboration is is so important because I I feel at least for a lot of I think up and coming designers, maybe they feel they have to sort of walk the road alone uh, as opposed to really asking for help, whether it's with mentorship or even just like you're mentioning, just asking a few questions to kind of get the ball. Yeah, you know, the thing is, is that um, even though I had a very successful design firm for 12 years, uh, when I moved back to New York City from um, Chicago, I had a studio space in Dumbo. Uh, way before Dumbo was really Kupushishi. And, um, but I, before that, I always thought that, oh, I would love to have a business. I'd love to have a business. And I come from a family of entrepreneurs. I grew up on both sides of my family. My grandfathers had business. My dad and his brothers ran a business. But I also realized something early on in my career is that I needed to learn from other people and learn the basics of my my business. So if I was going to be in graphic design, I needed to know about graphic design. I needed to know about the business of graphic design. I needed to know how people ran a business. And so I took uh, workshops through um, the American Women's Economic Development Association. They had a series of, I think it was 12 or 15 weeks. you come in and they would do um, different, they would cover different Uh, topics each week and there would be a different speaker that would talk about everything from choosing a name how to set up accounts how to deal with banking how to deal with accounting um, staffing and then you could go in for counseling and then you know I learned things through the AIGA through networking and I learned from working with other people in their studio spaces because um, you have to rent a space. <laughs> and that's very different than you working for a company. And, you know, so the things that you have to learn, you have to go out and ask. So I, I often feel that in things that I have an interest in and in collaboration, 
it's a little similar, it's a similar way because I'm not always knowing how to do something 100%. So I'm finding someone that has those skill sets that's a good mesh for me and that they have the same interest and the same passion that I have. And so you can come together and you can work on something. And I think it's important. And so asking people and learning that particular area is, is real important, uh, whether you're just starting out or you're seasoned. And I think it's even more important for people who are just starting out because a lot of times I have students that say, oh, yeah, you know, I want to go. I don't want to work for anybody. I want to go start. I, I want to do only do, work for myself. And I was like, well, you know, you might want to work for someone just so that you can get a sense of the business, how to communicate with clients, even how to get clients and how to maintain clients because you can be the best of what you are in your area, but people have to know that you exist and how are they going to come to you and find you and everything like that. So it's it's a learning process. All right. So just to wrap things up, uh, can you tell us where our audience can find you online? I have a blog. I blog called Cultural Boundaries, and I will send you a link. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. And that's where you can find me. Michelle Washington, thank you again so much uh, for this interview. For the people that are listening, this is the third time that we've had to do this. And I just I just really, really appreciate it. This has been a wonderful talk. Just so much, just great information. Uh, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. Well, I thank you for um, inviting me to and asking me to participate. And I should thank Steve Jones, Andrew Bass, and Maurice Woods for uh, their kind words and recommending me. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Michelle Washington and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to take our survey at revisionpath.com forward slash survey and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Revision Path is a 318 Media project. If you like what we're doing with these podcasts, you can help sponsor the show. Contact information will be included in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.